Would you open up your Bibles uh, or, or turn to John 1, verses 19 through 28? Taylor just read it. Thank you, Taylor, for doing that. I, I want us to be looking at it, though. So open it up and give it a quick scan. Uh, just kind of look through it again. Because this is the text we're going to try to unpack. And I want to tell you, this one is not an easy one. I don't know if you were listening to it, but exactly how do we take this text and apply it to our lives? I believe God will allow us to do that. But this one's going to require a little thinking, a little work. So did you come to church just to relax today, or did you want to engage your mind a little bit? I pray that you want to engage your mind a little bit, because this one's going to require that. Some passages of Scripture don't require as much. Others require some digging. We're going to go digging, and I think we're going to find some treasure here, but you're going to have to expend some mental energy to do that. So I'm going to need maybe a little more feedback than I get from you guys than usual. I'm going to need to know that you're with me as we wade through this text. Let me just return us to last week and the, the, the opening prologue of John. Remember we said John begins with a prologue, an introduction, ends with an epilogue, and now we're going to get into the meat of his gospel. And he introduced us to the Word who is... Jesus is God, and this introduction was in line with his purposes. Flip over to John 20, verse 31. I want you to get familiar doing this. You should almost put your finger in John 30 and 20, 31, every time we're gathered together to look at the Gospel of John, because John chapter 20, verse 31, tells you his purpose for writing. Look at it again. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may, what church? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His purpose for writing right there, that you might believe and you might have life in Jesus' name. So keeping in mind his purpose, he explained the greatness of Jesus and the, the love of of Jesus, and then he appeals that you not reject Jesus, but that you actually receive Jesus. He intends, he's making this case for the identity of Jesus because he wants you to respond favorably to Jesus. He doesn't want you to do like so many do, which is reject him. And then immediately John moves on to this brief summary of the ministry and the testimony of this incredible character in the scriptures, John the Baptist. Why would he move from this introduction of Jesus to the testimony and witness of John the Baptist? That's the question we should ask. Why would John do that? Remember, he's making the identity, he's making a case for the identity of Christ. So why, if making a case for the identity of Christ, bring another character in? Why describe John the Baptist at this point? John the Baptist will function today as an example of the first witness. Like, okay, what does it look like to believe in Jesus? Exhibit A. Here he comes. Illustration. 
And what follows is going to feel, although it's not a courtroom scene, it's going to feel like a courtroom scene. Because what John is doing is he's ushering forth, he's saying, hey, Jesus is, is great beyond your imagination. Eternally preexistent, the Word with God, was God, creator of all things, light and life of salvation. Here is someone who believes that. Let me introduce you to John the Baptist. So he's using John the Baptist as an illustration. And what it provides us with is a profile of the Christian life. Here we get, like, here we get a description of what a Christian looks like. What does it look like if you've believed in Jesus' name? What does your life look like if Jesus is your everything? When the real Jesus is molding and shaping your life, what will that produce? What does it look like when Jesus is really molding your life just like a piece of clay? What will, what will that produce in your life? What will be the evident quality of our character. So what I want to do is pay attention to this courtroom scene and see what the evidence demands of us. We're going to look at how John the Baptist responds to this interrogation and we're going to get the profile of a Christian. And the message I'm going to preach is really in two parts. It's going to be this defining characteristic of the profile of a Christian is going to be described. So a defining characteristic described and then we'll spend the last 15, 20 minutes looking at the defining characteristic applied. So let's look at it described. Let's look at it first. I've titled this, if you're into titles, I've titled this morning's sermons, Flip-Flops and Famous Prophets. Let's get started. John the Baptist. We don't get a real description of him, but what, I, I read a great, uh, I read something that a Scottish, minister had written. He actually went through and took all the main characters of the Bible and he preached a sermon on every single character of the Bible. It's amazing what this man has done. He wrote it like in the 1800s. His work on John the Baptist blew me away. Like he just went and looked at all the scriptures that had something to say about John the Baptist and he puts together this profile of him. And at the end of reading it, I wrote on the top, top chapter my paraphrase for the title of the John the Baptist sermon. This is a bad man. Not bad meaning bad, but like an incredible person. The scripture is tells us some about John the Baptist, but he might be one of the most neglected, misunderstood personalities of Scripture. That was not so with John, the disciple, who's writing about John the Baptist. He, he marveled over John the Baptist. And it wasn't the case in the first century. John the Baptist attracted enormous attention. Partly the way he dressed, partly the way he preached, the things that he had to say. 
He was filled with the Spirit, and he attracted a lot of attention among the Jewish people, but he also attracted, attracted the attention of people who were non-Jewish. So the Gentiles were really enamored. So the secular tabloids had a lot to say about John the Baptist as well. He was garnering a lot of attention. In fact, in early Jewish history, the secular historians had more to say about John the Baptist than they did about Jesus. That's how much attention he was gathering. Why did he attract so much attention? Why, why were so many people attracted to John the Baptist? Well, I told you we're going to dig. You guys ready with me? We've got to dig into this. Ancient Israel could boast of a rich history of the prophets. The prophets who came and spoke the word of the Lord. And they had this history of great prophets. We could name a few. Abraham functioned as a prophet. Moses was certainly a prophet. We've got Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, to name a few of Israel's prophets. Elijah, Elisha. These were the history of Israel's prophets. They were the all-stars. But the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament at this point had ceased. So there was no, there had been no famous prophet or even an infamous prophet that we know of prophesying the word of the Lord. Now I want you to flip back in your Bible. You can do it electronically or if you have your Bible with you. Flip back to the beginning of the New Testament, the end of the Old Testament. So I'll do it. There's how much distance you have from where we are in John. So John is this wounded finger right here. And then over here on my thumb is the last book of the Old Testament. It's a prophet, Malachi. Now look at how thin that is. It's not much there, right? Do you know how many years that represents? 400. 400 years. Silence. Until... John the Baptist shows up. And he starts preaching similar to the Old Testament prophets who always preach to the people of God. You're sinning. You're turning away from God. You're forgetting God. Come back. Repent. John the Baptist preaching the same message. And he even dresses like him. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us that he wore camel's hair clothing and ate grasshoppers and honey. So he looks like some of the Old Testament prophets. And we're, we're answering the question, why did he gather so much attention? Because he starts to resemble something that we've seen and heard of 400 years ago, but we haven't seen for a while. And he's preaching this, this message of repentance. Turn away from your sinful, selfish ways and turn back to God. Get ready for God. God's coming. And he wants his people to be purified and ready for him. And then he starts telling them that they need to, to take part in a ritual cleansing. They actually need to get baptized. 
You need a bath in God to wash the dirt of sin off of you. Now, two things. We're answering the question, why would you gather so much attention? Two things you need to understand about this baptism. Baptism, you guys with me? Baptism was a ritual in that time for non-Jews. It was for Gentiles. It was for people who were converting to Judaism. So there was this idea that if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish, you wanted to, to become a practicer of Judaism, you had to be baptized. Why? Because Gentiles are dirty. Gentiles are unclean. Jews and Gentiles, talk about racism that exists, that existed. They wouldn't eat with one another. So baptism was for Gentiles who were beginning to practice the Jewish religion. John the Baptist comes along. You're asking why he gathered attention. John the Baptist comes along and starts telling Jewish people that you need a bath. You need to get right with God. You need to be baptized. And this got the religious leaders jacked up. There's another reason. You need to understand. Another thing you need to understand about this baptism. The typical procedure for someone who is, who is going to be baptized and enter into Judaism, the practice of Jewish religion, was to baptize yourself. There was no pastor involved. There was no priest involved. There was no leader involved. You went down into the water, I guess, and baptized yourself. John the Baptist wasn't telling people to baptize themselves. He was actually doing the baptizing. And the religious leaders didn't like that either. You're telling Jewish people to be baptized, and you're doing the baptism? Who the heck are you? Who do you think you are? Who, who are you? What are you doing? He, you're not a priest. John's dad was actually a priest, but he wasn't a priest. His dad was Zechariah. So this comes to the attention of the religious leaders, and you can imagine how upset they are. So this is the testimony of John. It's like a testimony because the Jews sent priests and Levites to find out who he was. They sent a delegation. Go find out who this dude is. Go find out what he's about. Go get to the bottom of what he's talking about and what he's doing. And when they came, I don't know how they acted towards him, but typically we see the Pharisees and the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders acting smug and arrogant towards Jesus and his followers. I don't know how they acted towards him, but we're going to pay attention to the interrogation that takes place so that we can learn about Jesus because this is going to tell us something about Jesus and what it looks like when Jesus is your everything. Because John the Baptist serves as an example of what it looks like when Jesus has become everything to you. So let's, 
Let's look at the, in the interrogation, okay? Question number one. This is like a courtroom scene. First question, look at the scriptures. You'll see it. What are they asking? Verse 19, somebody shout it out. Who are you? Simple question. John's answer is really weird, and it's weirder in the Greek. Look, who are you? It's really interesting, too. Let me just, oh, I got to get Kitten going. Forget that. Um, <laughs> sorry. He said, they say, who are you? And then he answers, he confessed and didn't deny, but confessed. And then he tells him who he's not. This is an awkwardly constructed sentence. Why would John record his response this way? John is using the strongest possible method to show how emphatic John the Baptist is to say, in case you're wondering, because I know you've been looking for a Messiah, and you're looking for a Savior, you're looking for a leader, you're looking for someone who's going to come and rescue you. I just want you to know, right from the outset, I'm not him. And he does it in an emphatic way. He's basically saying, you think I'm Jesus? You think I'm the Messiah? You have no idea about what you're talking about because Jesus is the one that John has described in the first 18 verses. Are you kidding me? I ain't him. Second question. Let's keep moving. Second question. What do they say in verse 21? And they asked him, what then? another way of saying, well, who are you then? They start ticking off some of the possibilities. Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask, are you Elijah? I'm telling you, we've got to dig here. This is, this is more digging than we typically do, but I don't know how else to get to the bottom of this. First, they ask Elijah. Why would they ask Elijah? If you look at the last book of the Old Testament, and you look at the last chapter of that book, and you look at the last paragraph of that book, and you look at the last prophecy of the Old Testament, Malachi recorded these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi. In other words, God promised that on the last day, the Lord was going to send someone. Before the Lord returned, he was going to send someone. Who did he say he was going to send? Elijah. So there makes sense that they would ask, are you Elijah? What does John say? I'm not. Now that's a really confusing response. Because Jesus actually in other Gospels says that he is. What is it? Is John the Baptist Elijah? Matthew eleven fourteen says this. Jesus said this to his disciples. If you're willing to receive it, he is. Talking about John the Baptist. He is Elijah who is to come. Jesus, you're confusing us. Isn't the Bible confusing sometimes? You've got to keep pressing. Well, what is it? 
Jesus is saying he's kind of Elijah. He's kind of like Elijah. When the angel spoke to John the Baptist, Father Zechariah, he said he's going to go before the Messiah in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he's saying, what's being said here is he's like Elijah and that he's coming with the spirit, he's coming with power, and he's proclaiming the Messiah. Evidently, Jesus put a higher value and significance on John the Baptist's ministry than John the Baptist put on his own ministry. Remember that. And then, what does he say? He tells him, he responds, are you Elijah? No. Nope. Then they tick off another one. Are you the prophet? Not are you a prophet. Are you the prophet? What are they talking about there? We're digging, folks. Who'd they have in mind? Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for my people a prophet like you. Who they who's Deuteronomy talking about? Moses. I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jewish people were waiting for a prophet like Moses, who was the deliverer of God's people. They were looking for a deliverer. Are you him? Are you the prophet? What's he say? No. Third question. Verse 22. Who are you? We've got to give an answer. Somebody's looking for a report from us, and we got nothing so far. We keep asking questions, and all you give us is these one-word answers. Who are you? The tension is building. Now he speaks a quote. And it's from a prophet, but it's not from the prophets that they've asked about. Are you guys following me? This is really interesting if you follow this stuff. We're going somewhere with this, though, because this is going to give us a profile of a Christian. So he quotes from a prophet, but he quotes from Isaiah. Now, I want to remind you of a really interesting time in Jesus' life. When Jesus started his public ministry, he showed up at the synagogue. And, and they would let, rabbis would let guest preachers read a section of Scripture and preach a sermon. And so... On that day, Jesus walked into church, he walked into the synagogue, and he was asked to read from the scroll. And so Jesus, I'm, I'm turning here because I want you to see some of this. Jesus reads a section of scripture from the book of Isaiah. So it's the start of his ministry. He reads from Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads. Recorded in Luke 4, this story. And Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord, he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus did what very few people have ever done. He preached the shortest sermon ever. Kenny Lynch has never preached a sermon this effectively 
and this succinctly and this efficiently. He read Isaiah 61 and then he said, the scripture, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he closed it and sat down. John the Baptist goes to Isaiah as well, but a different section. He goes to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23, and he quotes, The voice of one, who are you? I'm the voice. Do you see this? John the Baptist is using one-word answers. Then when they finally pin him down, who are you? He doesn't even, he describes himself as a voice. He doesn't even describe himself with any self-worth. I'm a voice. Before the Messiah comes, God's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. That's me. I'm a road builder for Jesus. Everything I do points to Jesus. My whole life is about Jesus. Not about me. It's about Jesus. I'm all about living my life, getting the road ready for Jesus. My life's purpose is to point to Jesus. Interrogation question number four. He gives them the answer, and then in verse 25, they ask him, why do you baptize? You guys ready for this? This courtroom drama is rising. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And I'm saying that the description of John the Baptist is going to tell us something about Jesus. Look at what happens here. This wind is really wreaking havoc on my Bible. It's falling apart in front of me. My pages are coming out. Here we go. John chapter 1. Look at what he says. I baptize, they ask him, why do you baptize? I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. You don't know him. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The mention of Jesus' sandal strap is powerful. The mention of the sandal strap came from an expression that they used in that day. A disciple of a rabbi didn't just attend his lectures, didn't just ask questions and learn from him. If you became a disciple, you actually became something of a personal administrative assistant to the teacher. Teachers didn't get paid back then. But they had disciples that followed them that took care of their needs. You might remember an example of this, because Jesus did this with the disciples. Remember when he was preparing for the Passover? He said, yo, go into town, you'll find a colt there, tell the master that the, that the Lord needs it. And he said, go make preparations. And he was always telling them to feed the people. They were like his administrative assistants. So that's what a disciple did. He took care of the teacher's needs. But one thing differentiated a disciple from a slave. A disciple would take care of administrative tasks. But one thing a disciple would never, 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 ever do is take the shoes off of the teacher. That was a dirty job. He would never clean his teacher's feet. 
That was a role reserved for a slave. A disciple would never be demeaned in such a way. As this interrogation comes to a close, I want us to see the point. What John says to them is, I'm not worthy to take his shoes off. Don't look at me. I'm lower than a disciple. I'm lower than a slave. I'm not worthy of even taking his shoes off. He's so great. He's greater than you can possibly imagine. You guys don't know him. I I know him. And I'm saying to you that I'm not worthy of even taking his shoes off. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Let's apply the characteristic. We've described it. What is it? What is this characteristic? Let me get the band to return. We'll take a few more minutes. I'll take 10 more minutes here and just try to apply this. What are we to learn from this interrogation? Remember his, what he's doing here. Everything that John the Baptist has done and responded has been to point, Jesus, point to Jesus. He, they're asking him questions, and he wants the questions to bounce off him and reflect on Jesus. John the Baptist has given us a profile of a Christian. What does it look like when Jesus is your everything? Do you know what it looks like when Jesus is your everything? Astonishing humility. Astounding humility. If anybody could have drawn a little bit of attention to himself, John the Baptist could could have done it. And he won't have it. He won't draw any attention to himself because he wants all the attention on Jesus. John the Baptist is characterized by a, a freedom. And the freedom that he's characterized by that moves me when I look at this passage is his self-forgetfulness. He's not aware of self. He's aware of Christ. He's aware of Jesus. And he lives with this awareness. He uses very few words to answer their question. He describes himself as a voice. And then finally he says, I'm not even worthy to be his disciple. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm nothing. He's everything. How does that apply to us? Friends, has the gospel so worked in your life that what it has produced is astounding humility? An astonishing humility that you live your life desirous of pointing Everything you do, everything you say, everything you think is about pointing to Jesus. I tell you, that's true about John the Baptist. And God wants it to be more true about us. This little book right here, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller, you should get it. Take you about 20 minutes to read it. It's just 40 pages. It's incredible. But in it, he tells a story of Madonna. Now, I don't know what you think about Madonna. Madonna the singer, not Madonna Mary. I don't know what you think about her, but he uses her as an example of someone who is very self-aware. She's, this was taken from an interview she did for 
Vogue magazine, and this is what Madonna says about herself. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. I wonder if any of us can relate to this. It's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I start to feel like I'm mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle is never ended, and I guess it never will. Every time she accomplishes something, she has these thoughts. I wonder if you've thought about thinking the way she has. That's called metacognition. She's, aware, she's very self-aware, probably more self-aware than a lot of us. But we do the same thing. We're always striving. We want the verdict. What's the verdict we want? I'm somebody. I just want to be somebody. I want you to notice that I'm somebody. I want fame. However I can get it. And you want it too. You want to be noticed. But the next day, after you've, got, after you've done your thing and you feel like you're somebody, you've got to keep going. Why? Because you lose that feeling. You lose that awareness. Our egos, our self-importance, our sense of self-importance is never satisfied. So Madonna can get up and keep reading in the newspapers everything people say about her. She could turn on the radio. I would love that. Turn on the radio and hear your songs playing. But it doesn't satisfy. Because if I slow down, I'll start to feel like a nobody. I've got to keep working so that I can prove I'm somebody. I have become somebody, but I still have to prove I'm somebody. And this is the normal state of the human self. It's a cycle we all move through. And we need to see the difference that the gospel makes. The gospel made this difference in John the Baptist. It made this difference in Paul. Paul would say this. He would write in his letters, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. Because I care about what Jesus thinks about me. This is where Christians find their worth. Paul's not looking to others or himself for the verdict of his self-worth. John the Baptist is not looking to the religious leaders. He's not looking to himself. He's looking to the verdict of God for his self-worth. In other words, what I'm saying is your identity in Jesus should make more of a difference in your life than it does. If you have your identity in Christ, then you're free from living on that what do you call that little thing rats run on? You know what I'm talking about, that little treadmill thing. Yeah, that little thing. You're freed from running on that because your identity is found in Christ. We're all looking for the ultimate verdict. We all want it. The ultimate verdict is that we're important, that we're valuable. The trouble of it is we look for that verdict all around us. We look to other people to validate our importance. We look in the mirror and we either like or we don't like what we see, sometimes depending on the hour of the day. 
Some days we enter into the courtroom of our lives and we hear the prosecution bring pretty good defense against us and we feel like we're not somebody. But then some days we feel like we can offer pretty good defense and so we feel like we're winning. So some days you feel like you're winning, some days you feel like you're losing but Paul and John the Baptist have found the secret. The secret is this. The courtroom trial is over for them. They're out of the courtroom. You can't judge me. I can't even judge myself. It's only the Lord's judgment that mattered. And what the Lord has done, what Jesus has done, has entered into the courtroom for me. He's done that in my place. All the wrong things I've done have been placed on Jesus. His perfect life that he lived has now been imputed to me. And now because I've been believed in him, he's made me a child of God. The verdict's in. The only person whose opinion counts looks at me and finds me more valuable than all the rare jewels of the earth. Your opinion doesn't matter. My own opinion doesn't matter because the verdict's not rising and falling based on how I feel. The verdict is in. Jesus has rescued me. Jesus has saved me. And my worth is found in Him. And do you know what that does? It you, you get freed. There's this self-forgetfulness that takes place. And you know you're freed to do then? You're freed actually to serve other people. Because you're not finding joy in the praise of men. You're finding joy in Christ. Church, if that happened in us, if we became more like John the Baptist, if, I, if God could do that in me, I want more of this. I've read this passage. I want more of Jesus and less of me. We'll change this community. We'll saturate this area with the gospel when we remember that our worth is found in Jesus. I think if you were to summarize... John the Baptist summarized this passage. If you could summarize what he would say, he'd say it this way. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. I'm just a nobody. Nobody in the sense that his worth is not in what he can prove. His worth is in Jesus. And I'm making every effort to tell everybody about somebody. My prayer is that that's what God would do in us. That we'd see our worth found in Christ and that we'd make all of our efforts every day just to tell everybody about somebody. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand and sing.